had this amazing point where bailiffs turned up and luckily we got a tip off beforehand so we were able to I was able to have my lawyer there and we had this four hour meeting all in Khmer and I didn't understand a word of it and then the end of it they read out this document in English to me and I had to sign this Khmer document and I was sort of uh, am I okay signing this to my lawyer and he sort of yeah sure you can sign it if you want to no problem and I found out the next day that if I hadn't signed it uh, I would have been in contempt of court and banged up him immediately like they would have arrested me on the spot if I'd refused to sign it and take me away so it was all <laughs> to Cambodian jail yeah to Cambodian jail I'm Kate Rainscoldy and this is Fearless Be Playful the show where I speak to people using the power of play to change the world and change their lives. In this week's episode, I talk to Marcus Holmes, gentleman technologist, digital nomad, and former CEO of the Phnom Penh Post in Cambodia. Marcus shares how his playful disposition got him out of depression and into a life he loves. He shares how a playful approach has enabled him to keep learning and growing beyond his comfort zone, which he says is key to staying happy, especially as we get older. And of course, being playful and taking risks is how he found himself saying yes to a role as head of a major newspaper without any previous experience as a publisher or a CEO. Then, when everything went really, really pear-shaped, it was two skills from playing games that saw Marcus through to the other side. Non-attachment and being in the flow. And now, on with the show. You call yourself the gentleman technologist. Are we <laughs> recording? Yes, we are. <laughs> where, where did that come from? Um, God, it's uh, all part of... So back in 2011, I got involved in the whole startup scene and um, everyone had kind of a brand and there was a kind of um, how would you describe yourself. And I had to answer the question, like, what, what do you do? Um and I had no answer to that. I mean, I was doing a bit of freelancing work and scraping together some income out of, you know, bits of programming work and um, supporting all these events and doing all these things in the startup scene. And it was just, the hell do you call yourself? Um, so I just, I came, I came up with a gentleman technologist. A, I grew an enormous moustache and there was that whole kind of <laughs> steampunk aspect to it all. <laughs> um, and, and it kind of fit the role. And so I ended up and there's been a few times where I've been openly laughed at for calling myself the gentleman technologist, which I actually kind of enjoy because it's, it's very humbling. It's very, yeah. Having people actually laugh in your face at calling yourself yeah. the gentleman technologist is quite grinding. It's quite but that's of, part of it, though, right, is being playful, like growing a giant moustache is part of it. Like exactly. It's almost like, like a costume. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like a costume. And it was this really freeing thing of, uh, like, I gave up full-time work. I, I, I had a huge depression and... Uh, got given redundancy for my job which was awesome and I had like six months money to try and work out what the hell I was going to do next but it was this enormous freeing thing that I didn't have to go to a job and you know turn up at nine o'clock and leave at five o'clock and I uh, didn't have to have a regulation haircut and I didn't have to have a regulation anything and I could really reinvent myself as what the hell I wanted to be and so the gentleman technologist was kind of an emergence from all of that it was really good being able to create my own identity. So I had the same thing, like when I was CEO of the Post, I had to go a regulation haircut. Two days after I left the Post, I shaved it into a mohawk again, because it's just, <laughs> yeah, I'm free again. So did the mohawk come when you grew the moustache as well, or is that later? Uh, kind of, yeah, I played with a whole bunch of hairstyles. Um, okay. And I always have done that, like I've always changed my hairstyle every few months, but I keep coming back to this kind of weird mohawk. I mean, it's not a proper mohawk now, because I've got the bald spot, <laughs> it ends up as this kind of Morse code... <laughs> 
thing. <laughs> I've got this gap in, so yeah. you have to shave the back as well. And I keep thinking of going like, you know, West Australian rat tail at the back <laughs> as well. Just to, yeah, to keep it real. Yeah, to your roots. <laughs> so I put in with the bogans too. But, <laughs> but yeah, um, I know, you know playing with your hair and playing with your identity and playing with all of that is really important. Yeah. Like, this continual evolution of trying to work out who the hell you are and, and where you fit in the world is part of all of that is playing with playing with appearance and have so, you figured but, that out yet god no <laughs> no it's weird i just turned 50 and i have no idea like i i'm i'm undergoing another evolution in that i'm turning into a digital nomad and you know trying to work that out and there's a whole bunch of problems i see in the digital nomad community that i want to get in there and fix mm. and do and stuff and so yeah it's um i i can see it changing still so yeah it's cool yeah so I want to, yeah, I want to get to talking about your adventures at the Post, but I kind of want to talk about your, because how we connected before was through Web Girls, which was Rails Girls at the time. Yeah. yeah. So t- can you talk a bit about that and that experience, and uh, being the gentleman, gentleman technologist that so, was running that? Yeah, okay. Um, I really want to preface all of that with, uh, I no longer take credit for any of that. Like, Kate has taken it on to amazing places, and... She's taken it over and she's taken it on to amazing places and I I don't want anything like I, I'm happy to talk about it but uh, but like the credit goes to her like this would not be where it is without her and my contribution to that has actually been fairly minor so she was in on it right from the start and it's really been um, you know it, it's been her baby so you know I'm, <laughs> I'm happy to talk about it mm. and, and where it started from and where it went to but but I want to make it absolutely clear that I'm not claiming any credit for mm. any of this. And it was all just random from my point of view <laughs> at the time. And it's really Kate who's who's owned that and taken it yeah. forward and, and all of that. Well, you got it started, and I think there's... Well, so originally, yeah. uh, Darcy, um, who was a major player in the Rails community, or a major mainstay in the Rails community, uh, wanted to run Rails Girls, but he didn't know how to run an event, or he didn't want to run an event. So he approached me to say, do I want to actually organise the event for Rails Girls. Sure, okay. So I organised the event and he handled all the community stuff and the Rails Girls, the first Rails Girls, was awesome. Did really well. Uh, I forget how many attendees we had, but it was a real success. So I went on to do that the second time um, and again it was a great success. And then Darcy left and went to Melbourne and we got uh, an approach from the Django community saying, hey, we'd love to do the same, we'd love to do Django Girls but we're not really sure how to do this. And they were asking me advice, and I was just saying, well, why don't we merge the events? Like, we we can easily, you know, we've got enough room to do, like, twice the size. Uh, if you've got a bunch of mentors and we've got Rails, a bunch of mentors, then we can do that. And so that's really how Post Web Girls was, was born, um, out of Rails Girls and merging it in with Django Girls. Um, and it didn't feel right calling it either Rails Girls or Django Girls, so we just came out with Post Web Girls which everyone keeps pointing out, uh, sounds like an online brothel. Uh, <laughs> so, but, but in a way, there's a kind of, you know, there's a sense of reclaiming that as yeah. well, that, you know, women, actually, women belong on the web in a non-sexual about, manner, yeah. so, you know, yeah, get totally. used to it. Um, <laughs> um, Such an innovative thought. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and then we got in touch with the Fenders group, who were really booming at the time, and uh, added that in. So they're teaching HTML and CSS. Um, and and that's pretty much where it's where it stayed. Um, my 
objective was always, I always felt a bit uncomfortable about a bunch of fat, hairy geeks saying, hey, ladies, <laughs> come and join, <laughs> come and do more IT stuff, come and do more programming. So I was always, uh, my, my mission was always to recruit up enough women to run it themselves and then hand over the whole thing to women to, so that women could run it themselves. Yeah. So, yeah, um, which luckily happened. Uh, I think it was about three, four years into it. Um, there was uh, Mandy from Fenders and Kate um, and Majin, and you know they were running basically running the events. The last event that they ra- that I was involved in, I did bugger all. I mean, I kind of arranged the meetings and then watched them all do it. And yeah. I was like, cool. Right, so you made I'm, yourself obsolete in the best yeah. way possible. Yeah, yeah. Cool. yeah. And basically stepped back and and and, ended up and and Kate's taken over and she's done amazing things with it. She's got BHP involved. She's now a, like Perth Web Girls is an accredited supplier to BHP, which is really hard to do. Precisely because like she's got she's got these big players yeah, involved so much. And it's, oh, it's amazing to watch. Yeah, and I know she's thinking about further ideas of, of what to do with the whole thing and take it further and, and take it on. It's just oh, it's it's amazing. Like I'm I'm so proud. <laughs> cool. um, yeah, yeah, it's been really cool. Cool. <laughs> and then then you kind of went off on some adventures, <laughs> and I want to preface that by saying that. For me, in kind of thinking about doing this podcast, the playfulness, part of playfulness for me is being bold and experimenting and going on adventures and doing things that, yeah, you know, yeah. taking a risk and like moving to a completely other country and doing something completely different. Yeah. So but again, it wasn't, I mean, this isn't planned. This was just yeah, to like... Yeah, but being open to... Exactly. Being open yeah. to opportunities yeah. and being able to say yes to something that, that is actually quite scary is, yeah, um, yeah it was great. And yeah. have it not be scary. No, it was scary. It was I mean, scary. It was, <laughs> there, were, there were times when I was like, I was this close to being in a Cambodian jail. So, yeah. Okay, so maybe we should back up and talk. So how did we get to that? Point? Okay, so. <laughs> so, uh, so what happened? You so, were living in Western Australia. You were living in... Living Perth. in WA. Yeah. And I've got all these contacts all through the startup scene. Um, one of my friends, uh, Anchor, who's running a startup called Tuggle, uh, he's, he's been going around Southeast Asia for the last five years or so. Uh, basically working from all these different places. And he needed someone to help him out on the code. And so he said, well, I can't really afford to pay Australian wages, so come to Thailand and you know, for a few weeks and, and I'll pay you to do that. So that's what we did. Um, so I moved to Chiang Mai, uh, stayed there for six weeks, helped him out on the code um, and bumped into the whole you know, digital nomad crowd. And, and it was, yeah, it was, it was great time. Chiang Mai is beautiful. Um, during that process uh the owners of the Phnom Penh post were looking for it in Cambodia so the Phnom Penh post was was actually the premier newspaper in Cambodia the, there were two independent newspapers the Cambodia Daily and the Phnom Penh post and the Cambodia Daily uh, got a huge tax demand from the government and decided not to pay it and they closed up so that just left the post as the, the last independent newspaper in Cambodia um and so, yeah, uh, halfway through the, the Chiang Mai gig, uh, I, got, um, I got contacted by Charlie Gunningham in, in Perth to say, hey, you know, um, there's a possibility that you might be the right kind of person that they're looking for to run the Phnom Penh Post in Cambodia. Are you interested? <laughs> okay, sure, <laughs> as you do. <laughs> no harm in talking, right? So, so I flew over to Cambodia and met the owner, um, and had two days kind of wandering around the post, talking to everybody and looking at Phnom Penh. And, and yeah, it was this amazing opportunity. It was really, I could see where I could make a difference to this. I could see where 
the the business was struggling and yeah, it was, it was an amazing challenge. So that took a couple of months to come through. So October the third, <laughs> I flew to Pompan and turned up at the business and. And the person who was supposed to do the handover had gone to China, and they so there was nobody to do any handover. Nobody knew who the hell I was. And I turned up reception going, hi, I'm the new CEO. <laughs> and the receptionist, who didn't speak much English, was just like, ah, yes, sure, take a seat, and I'll go and find them. I'll, no, 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 I'm the new CEO. <laughs> no, take a seat, and I'll go in. Like, tell you what, no, I'll, I'll just go and sit in my office and wait till somebody turns up. So, yeah, uh, day one walking in, you know, I, I didn't meet the chief editor until a couple of hours after I've been sitting in the office going, what the hell do I do now? Uh, and then he introduced me around the whole place and, and I you know, gradually worked out where all the levers were and started pulling. So, And yeah, it was, I mean, it was an amazing uh, experience. Um, one of the biggest problems I had was the Asian attitude to authority because Asians have this huge power distance in their culture uh, that they respect authority and so they don't say no to a boss. So if I said something completely stupid, because I've never run a newspaper, never even worked in a newspaper before, <laughs> never run a newspaper, never been CEO before, never been to Cambodia before, <laughs> no, no, like, I, I am completely making shit up right from the start. Yeah. Um, and of course I'm getting things wrong, but everybody, in, all the Cambodians were just, no, um, like, just, yes boss. They would never tell me that I was doing something wrong or stupid. Um, they would just not do it, or, you know, it just wouldn't happen. So I, I was on, constantly in the first few months chasing things up, going, why hasn't this happened? And they'd be, so sorry, so sorry, so sorry, so sorry, yeah. so sorry. And I kind of learned over time, ah, oh, right, okay. So when they're not massively enthusiastic about something, that actually means it's a really bad idea. And I had to start learning to phrase things so that I would actually get their opinion from it, asking open questions instead of yes-no questions, because the answer would always be yes. So, you know, should we do this? Yes. Um, what do you think we should do? Suddenly got you like a uh, an honest opinion. As long as I hadn't expressed opinion first, so yeah, it was really hard. And learning an authoritarian management style was was really hard. Like getting used to the fact that if I said something, everyone would jump. Apart from the Western journalists who would grumble incessantly amongst <laughs> yeah. themselves. But yes, that all, all the Khmer stuff would jump, and yeah, it was it was really. If I said something, they'd say how high. Um, and I was learning how to how to manage that because it's not a management style I'm really yeah. used to. I'm much more used to servant leadership, which works much better in um, kind of Western creative teams. So yeah, that was that was real fun. And then it all got completely pear shaped. We'll, we'll come we'll come to that. <laughs> so how did your gentleman technologist? Did you still have the mustache? Even though you didn't have the mohawk at the time. Well, I kind of trimmed it all down. Okay, so and it was made a bit, a bit more sensible. Down. Yeah. Okay. Um, so like the mohawk and that was, was a real moment. More, like, more sensible mohawk. <laughs> or no more no, no, no more hook at all yeah, it's okay. just yeah like just short hair um, yeah I had this uh, I had this whole conversation with some of the journalists about gentleman technologists because they'd obviously done some background reading on me and they're like yeah. what's this gentleman technologist and that's, <laughs> what's yeah, this business about? one of those moments where I yeah. openly laughed at for these <laughs> gentleman technologists it's quite humbling <laughs> um, but yeah it's um, it was really weird because I had to be I had to be I was no longer responsible for just myself. There's 200 people. Yeah. And I had to be the figurehead for all of that in a society that really respected that. There was no, um, you know, sense of humour about any of this, that it was really, this was serious business. This was a serious newspaper with a serious mission to look after, you know, a 20 million people country and stop it from turning into a, a complete um, dictatorship. 
I mean, that's that's really what they, they felt they were doing. So yeah. there wasn't much room for this kind of playful aspect of it in there. It was really... Um, so despite the fact that I felt like a monkey sometimes pulling on levers because I had no idea what I was doing and yeah. making it up as I was going along. Um, luckily, it was all working. I mean, it, you know, it's... <laughs> um, but it was this really serious kind of um, situation. Yeah. But, I mean, then having... I mean, the history of of the post, the ex-CEOs, I mean, some of the stories are just outrageous. Just... Um, they always say Cambodia is really dangerous, not because of what's there, but because of what you bring. So if you have an alcohol problem, it's going to be ten times worse. If you have you know, mm. a women problem, it's going to be ten times worse. It's, everything you want is available cheap, 24 hours a day. Um, and so the only constraint you have is, is your self-control. And so they have stories of you know, drunken editors passed out drunk, drunk at 2 o'clock in the afternoon and sofas and you know CEOs getting blowjobs under the desk of their office and which was quite so spooky because it's like I'm sat at the same desk going, which, it's like Mad Men or something yeah but today yeah literally was um and it's not, oh, not today it's, it's calmed down today but yeah. you know this was five years ago yeah. and yeah it was it was a complete wild west yeah. um and so I was actually kind of a bit of a press of fresh air because at least I was vaguely professional. Yeah. <laughs> at least I, yeah. <laughs> I had the, so the best the interest of the paper okay. at heart. And yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Um, yeah. So, so did being being a playful gentleman technologist kind of serve, help you to, to deal with the fact that you had no idea what was happening and... Well, again, and, what, and what to do when you've never been a CEO, you never, you, you know, you come from a software development background and suddenly you're the head of a newspaper in Cambodia, right? Did that kind of help you to... Yeah, I guess so. The, the whole, the being playful around my identity and being able to change my identity or having changed my identity right the way throughout my life kind of helped with this in that I could adopt the persona of the CEO of the Phnom Penh Post fairly easily and do, and do a good job. Um, <laughs> But yeah, it was really. I had to kind of put the whole gentleman technologist thing to one side while I yeah. did this. So, because, like I said, I mean, it's serious business. Yeah. It's not, yeah. How did you avoid getting massive imposter syndrome? Because uh, <laughs> it sounds I, like you're doing all of these things completely new for the first time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I don't think I did. I mean, I, I, I suffered quite a lot from imposter yeah. syndrome, and it was. Um, it was quite hard being that assertive because I had to be that assertive because it very authoritarian culture and it was quite hard being that assertive. I was really, I know for the first few months I wasn't nearly strong enough um, in terms of my maintaining my opinion in the face of other people's opinion. Um, and to an extent I was saved by the, the respect due to authority because um, everyone just assumed that I knew what I was doing because otherwise I wouldn't be the CEO. Mm. Um, but yeah, yeah, it was, it was really... But you learn, you learn fast. I mean, mm. within a few months, I knew exactly what I was doing and where I was going and how I was handling it, and I had a plan for everything else. And, and yeah, um, we had this ridiculous situation, but I knew, like, by that point, I'd worked out where the levers were and how to pull them mm. and, and, yeah, knew where we were going. And it just, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you were working on their digital transformation, getting kind of more... Yeah, so I had, to, I had to recruit up, recruit up a dev team, uh, create uh, an app or two apps for the, well, in fact, four apps, because you've got the two platforms and English and Khmer versions, um, for the for the paper and work out how to fit that into the advertising model that we already had um, and turn that into the main revenue-generating machine for the entire business. Um, and, yeah, so I'd, by Christmas I'd recruited up the team, um, 
and then by March, April, we had the first version of the app ready to go, and that's yeah. By that point, it was all falling apart anyway. So, um, the week that I left was when they actually launched the the app. So I kind of it all it all happened on time, and it was all heading in the right direction. But yeah, um, the people who took over did not know how to monetize any of that or what to do with the apps, and so it's all kind of fallen apart since yeah. then. But yeah. Yeah, it was all on track. Yeah. Um, that was an amazing challenge. I mean, how do you take this uh, very paper-oriented machine and turn it into something that's much more digital-oriented? The The entire journalist, the entire newsroom, was fixated on their publishing schedule. So they had to have, by kind of 10 o'clock midnight, they had to have the entire paper ready and able to go, which means that you had stories weren't being written or completed writing until like 7, 8 o'clock at night um, you'd probably see the first story appearing for that day about 5 o'clock maybe um, and that's, you know, you can't do that in the digital world there's no point, because you're basically reporting on yesterday's news the entire yeah. time, everybody has already known what the news is and then they read it in the post the next morning it's just, um, if we're going to do that digital, we have to get the whole newsroom used to a 24-7 reporting cycle, so um, luckily, I managed to find uh, some great people. Uh, I had a, a great digital editor um, who used to work at the Cambodia Daily, and before that, she worked at AP. Um, and so she came on and, and really helped try and transform the newsroom to this more modern digital um, workflow. But God, anyway, yes. <laughs> so, so what <coughs> happened in the end? Oh, okay. You so, kind of alluded to it already, so yeah. spoiler is it didn't, <laughs> didn't end well. But what, what so we had, a, uh, we had a $3.5 million tax demand by the government, which we were in the process of negotiating. So the government were doing this with all, all businesses. They basically reformed the entire tax system, and they'd done a 10-year audit on every business, and they were handing out these ludicrous tax demands. I mean, huge things. And I mean, ours was to- a total joke. There were ridiculous things in there. Like, uh, like every time we got a, a newspaper returned... That was added to our inventory, um, or rather the tax department said that should have been added to our inventory, so we should have had all of these millions of newspapers sitting in a warehouse somewhere that we could sell at any time. This idea that yesterday's <laughs> newspaper is not worth the same that as today's newspaper completely escaped them. Um, so yeah, we had to. there was a lot of argument that we had to do and negotiation that we had to do with them, um, and it was, it was ongoing, but... Somewhere in the entire process, and I don't think it was in the post, all of that got leaked to the press, so suddenly we were having to conduct these negotiations right in the face of all this media interest from all over Southeast Asia about how the government was yet again presenting an independent newspaper in Cambodia with this enormous tax bill. Um, and, of course, that made negotiation really difficult because you know, anything we said, we knew that they were probably leaking to the press, and, oh, God, it was hot. And then we had a... Um, unfair dismissal case by an ex-CEO um, who had decided for whatever reason that um, catching him defrauding the company was, was not on and that he was owed a lot of money by the company. So um, so he'd taken that and that was being quietly managed uh, until a um, the Cambodian system, is a legal system, is... Um, uh, I don't know how much I can say about all of this, but <laughs> the Cambodian legal system is basically it, it works by patronage. So, if you've got a powerful person in um, on your side, then everything goes smoothly, and you know things happen. 
um, we some powerful person in Cambodia had picked up this case and was pushing it against us. And so suddenly we were finding that um, from two years when nothing happened, suddenly everything happened in two months. And we had you know, a judgment against us, and not only a judgment against us, but a judgment against us for the maximum possible amount that they could have got, um, and a um, temporary enforcement of that uh, judgment so that they could start collecting it immediately, even though we were starting an appeal. So we appealed, um, and two weeks later the appeal was heard and rejected. Um, which never happens. I mean, in any court in Cambodia, you know, appeals normally take two years. So we were counting on all this time in which to to get all our ducks in a row and, and all of that. And no, none of it happened. So we we ended up with a high court appeal, with a Supreme Court appeal to the appeal, which was just blocked because meanwhile we had this temporary injunction against us. So they started trying to collect. So I had this amazing point where bailiffs turned up and... Luckily, we got a tip off beforehand, so we were able to. I was able to have my lawyer there, and we had this four-hour meeting, all in Khmer. And I didn't understand a word of it. And then the end of it, they read out this document in English to me, and I had to sign this Khmer document. And I was sort of, uh, "Am I okay signing this to my lawyer?" And he sort of, "Yeah, sure, you can sign it if you want to, no problem." And I found out the next day that if I hadn't signed it, uh, I would have been in contempt of court and banged up in immediately like they would have arrested me on the spot if I'd refused to sign it and take me away so it was like <laughs> to Cambodian jail yeah come to Cambodian jail which apparently isn't too bad as long as you've got enough money to bribe the jailers so yeah God. <laughs> so how are you feeling during all of this um it was really weird it was like by that point I I had a grip on the business I knew what I was doing and I was um so the court case was it was really hard to juggle it because we had no like we had no real control over it and random things were happening so it was a bit panicky but at the same time like we knew they weren't going to shut down the post they had to keep the post going so we knew we weren't in kind of any existential danger and although yes I might have been arrested like it would have caused outrage um we had you know um we had European governments quietly contacting us going like if you do get into any trouble, let us know because we will exert pressure, and and you know we we need the post to be to be running. So it was kind of this weird diplomatic, business, political situation where I kind of I always felt like I was in the eye of the storm. Like it was this kind of center of calm. <laughs> like I know what I'm doing. I've got this. Like <laughs> everything seems to be working, and then random stuff would come flying out of it, and I'd catch that and deal with that and slot it into a place. But it was, yeah. Um, I'm, I often think of like video games and, and all of that, that it was a bit like playing a video game. Like being it? in the flow? Yeah, like, like I, know, I know how to control my character. <laughs> <laughs> I know Your toned-down com- moustache man. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, I know how combat works. <laughs> like, <laughs> all these random people leaping out and trying to ambush me and stuff like that, it's fine because I've, I've, I've got this, you know. My hit points might be a bit lower and I might be running out of mana, but at least I know what the hell's going on, you know. <laughs> So, yeah. That's a situation I never thought a video game would be like useful in terms of like. <laughs> that would be really yeah. cool. <laughs> Saving you from like, going to yeah. Cambodian jail. Yeah, it's just turn up every day and have something random happen yeah. and yeah, you have to cope with it. Yeah. And then, yeah, finally, so the, the owner decided to sell the business um, in the face of all of this. Uh, you know, he got a decent offer, a decent price, God knows why. Uh, we're still not really sure where the money came from or where the connections are, but, you know. Um, and. Then Black Monday, so um, the new owners 
came in on Monday and had this enormous row um, because they wanted to sack the editor-in-chief and they wanted to sack two Western reporters for writing things that they disagreed with. Um, and it just became really obvious that this was not going to be a good result, so I resigned. Um, and they basically said, sure, OK, bye. Um, and within three days, all the Western reporters, news reporters, had all gone. The poor guys on the sports desk suddenly got handed the front page. <laughs> you guys have to write news stories that now. That must have been interesting. <laughs> the sports guys are like, but we, we just cover football matches. We have no idea about it. So, yeah, that was hilarious. Obviously not for them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Did you um, find out what was in that document that you signed, the contract? Uh... It wasn't really a contract, it was just an acknowledgement of this This is all yeah. happened. Um, by the point it all got sold, that all vanished. Uh, as part of the, the sale contract, okay. the whole court case was settled, and so it all, it all kind of went away and vanished, so I don't have to worry about that anymore. Yeah, that's good. Um, and I've been back to Cambodia since, and yeah. nobody has kind of jumped out of the woodwork going, ah, you, you're busted. So I'm pretty sure it's all gone away. <laughs> <laughs> so so you, you resigned, and, and yeah. then... And then, uh, well, it was kind of... I mean, I mean, I saw the writing on the wall, so I... Uh, You'd been prepared that this was going to yeah, happen. Yeah, well, I knew, I mean, the first, in any of these acquisitions, the CEO is usually the first one out the door. So um, I quit my flat, and I uh, got a hotel room. Um, my girlfriend came and joined me the next day, which, again, was kind of syn- synchronicity at work. This, we hadn't actually planned all of this. And so basically I had this kind of great month in Cambodia with my girlfriend wandering around seeing all of Angkor Wat and going down to Kampot and just doing all the tourist thing that I hadn't had a chance to do. And then we kind of left and, and started travelling. Went off to the Philippines and did two, two months in the Philippines and then went to Malaysia and then Nepal and then back to Thailand. And yeah, yeah it's been great. Um, and I've kept an eye on it all ever since and it appears that the original buyer has now resold it and um, there's a there's a lot of shady stuff that's emerging about the actual sale so it's going to be really interesting to see what comes up in the next few months because yeah um, nobody's nobody's happy with it at all so yeah have they kept or implemented any of your digital Uh, transformations the the apps are still going uh, but that's only because the team that are recruited into there um, the managers have no idea what to do with the apps they haven't done anything with it they haven't put advertising into it as far as I'm aware it's just yeah um so yeah, it's the reporting. They haven't recruited up any Western reporters. The reporting has all been terrible. The um, circulation of the newspaper has died. It's just nobody has any respect for it anymore. They, you know, all the value in that newspaper they completely destroyed over the past year. So, well, the past six months. So yeah, it's crazy. Oh well. <laughs> <laughs> well indeed. Yeah, seriously. Yeah. So you're full time digital nomad now. Yeah, I had this. Uh, Three days after Black Monday, I had a phone call from an ex-boss who um, has got enough money now to fund a startup idea that we had 10 years ago and was wondering if I was free. And I was, as it happens, yes, yes, I am. So I arranged a deal with him where I'd code um, part-time, like four or five hours a day, six days a week, um, while I went travelling. So, yeah, I've, it's been great. I've been able to learn while I'm travelling and write code and shave my hair again because nobody cares what I look like and yeah growing enormous moustache again <laughs> yeah it's been fun so are you allowed to talk about that project at all what that project uh, was yeah so um, the business that he and I worked on years ago was a document management business um, and we always thought that there was a gap in the market for personal document management this was before Dropbox and Google Drive and all of that 
but we still think there's a, a gap in the market for like really controlled sharing. So if you share somebody, if you share a folder with in Dropbox with somebody, then if they delete something, then it disappears out of the folder. Mm. I mean, it's just like it's not you're not in control anymore as mm. soon as you share it. And it's kind of the same with Google Drive that as soon as you start sharing it, you've got no control about what they do with it, whether they and all of that. So. Um, we think there's a gap in the market for like accountants and lawyers and professionals, people who generate like serious legal documents that need to need to be shared with only that person and nobody yeah. else and all of that. So yeah, that's what we're build, busy building at the moment, like end-to-end encrypted and all that, which has been quite fun to, to learn. Um, I thought the encryption would be really hard, but it took about two days. It was just like you plug this library into that bit and oh, oh, it's done, cool. Yeah, it's been great. <laughs> so a lot of the people I meet who are digital nomads tend to be younger. And yes. I feel like there's a connection between, like as you get older, I think there's, you know, that people say that you get more conservative and you're kind of less willing to experiment. Yes. So how do you, how have you kept that kind of like adventurous, playful, willing to, you know, yes. potentially fail to take risks? How have you... I know exactly what you're talking about. Um, so, so one thing is that um, for various reasons to do with my childhood <laughs> and my, my therapist um i have i haven't i don't have any kids i don't have any roots i don't have any i uh, was born i mean so mum's australian dad's english and so i've always had a foot in each continent or each hemisphere and i've never really known what it is to have a single nationality you know like i've always i was brought up in the uk by a desperately homesick australian mother so i've always had this affinity to go to australia and so like, I never really worked out what home was. Um, so part of it is that, kind of, I don't have those kind of roots. I also don't have a family in that I don't have children. Um, I don't have a mortgage. I deliberately... I, I have had a mortgage, but I decided that was a mug's game and didn't, didn't do that anymore. Um, I've got, you know, a mother and a sister in Australia and a father and a sister in, in the UK, and it's just... It's really hard saying... Like, people keep asking, where are you from? And I'm like... Oh, hard question. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Do you have ten minutes? <laughs> yeah, precisely. Yeah. It's like, um, and the other part is that I deliberately during the depression I could see, and I, I see it in other friends of mine. This your depression, not yeah, the during, sorry, yeah, not the, uh, <laughs> not that old, but too young for that. <laughs> um, yeah, during my depression, I mean, I I had to confront a whole bunch of uh, of my you know, um, psychological problems. Um, and one of which was I could see this this comfort zone looming. This, uh, and I see it in some of my friends that of, of same age that they just sit in the comfort zone. They don't want to do anything that's not uh, that's at all risky. They, mm. they by the kind of mid forties, you suddenly kind of I am comfortable here, and this is who I am, and you can feel it all kind of calcinating around this one mm. identity and this one position with this one root. And I deliberately decided I was not going to do that. Um, I. You know, what I mean, made you deliberately decide that? Uh, partly because I, I kind of associated with the depression, with this okay. whole... Um, so I knew I had to do something differently, so I started doing everything differently. And then that led me to work out, ah, okay, so if you, do every, you, know, if you keep learning and keep doing new things and keep doing stuff, then you don't get this discomfort zone. You don't get this kind of, this is my happy place and I'm never leaving it. So it's not actually your happy place. It feels like it is, but it's Yeah, it kind of feels like it actually. is, but it's... It, yeah, um, and, I mean, there's a famous startup expression that, you know, all of the, the interesting and fun part of life happens outside of your comfort zone. Um, so, yes, continually changing and learning. I think the big one was when I uninstalled Windows and installed Linux on my computer. 
I was like, I've been programming in Windows since I was a kid, and it was just like I, that was the only ecosystem I knew. And Linux was all a bit scary and weird. And I was just no bollocks to this. I am learning this, so I just uninstalled Windows and installed Linux and started right. Okay, if I'm going to use a computer, I have to use Linux. Um, and it was great. I mean, I'm now being like. Can't stand Windows, <laughs> um, but it's it, it it forced me to go and learn a whole brand new thing, and that was really good. It really helped my professional development, really helped my personal development. It was just you know get the hell out of the um, out of my comfort zone and go and learn something new and push myself to go and mm. be in a strange situation. And you know it was it was great. It was this real um, I can do this. You know I I'm not. I can still learn. I'm not stuck in, in the familiar place and I, I'm capable of dealing with the unknown. Um, so it's like actually, that feedback cycle of, yeah, of yeah. having the trying and getting a positive feedback and going, oh, I can do this and I get good yeah. results and I feel good and I can keep doing it so now I'm going to try harder at yeah. the next level. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And like, oh, I'm really comfortable here so let's yeah. mess this up and yeah. do something else. Um, yeah, in fact, I mean, travel has been great because there's all that... I mean, Southeast Asia is not a safe place. There's, yeah. you know endless problems with it and going to Cambodia as you know the CEO of the, the leading political uh, newspaper is not a safe thing to do I was plenty of people telling me that's a very dangerous position and you need to be really careful but what I learned is that I have I have the ability to cope with it and I learned to trust my ability to cope with these adverse situations and so now I'm much more willing to, to put myself into a potentially dangerous situation because a lot of it is just fear. A lot of it is just people being afraid of, of what they don't understand or being afraid of, oh, it's, what's the worst that could happen without looking at, well, what's the best that could happen? Mm. And and that whole, you know, if the worst happens, you'll cope. It's, mm. <laughs> it's no big deal. It's like, yeah. The worst thing that happened to me in my entire travels was I poured a beer into my MacBook. Uh, <laughs> And it completely destroyed it. And it was just, oh, no. <laughs> and I, you know, I couldn't get a replacement. And uh, I eventually went to Kuala Lumpur and got a replacement. And it didn't work. And it's just been... Um, and it's like, I know it sounds, it, it sounds terrible, but it actually is quite upsetting. Yeah. Because I probably spent... I mean, I'm spending half my day every day on the, yeah. on the computer. And I'm it's still the tool not of your trade. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. I'm still not comfortable with the replacement yeah. I've got. But I coped, you know. Yeah. It's like, and that's the You're still worst alive thing. And <laughs> yeah, <happy>. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, and you know, shooting around on a scooter in Nepal, we nearly died. Um, we had a, a scooter accident in Thailand where I completely misjudged something and threw us down the road, and and all that, and we coped. You know, it's just, um, you, it's it's amazing what you can cope with if you just trust your ability to cope yeah. and you know feel the fear but do it anyway. That yeah. sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. it's really good. Cool. So do you think maybe that was the reason that you got recommended for the job is that you didn't have like the, you know, traditional qualifications, but this like being fearless and being playful and, you know, willing to, you know, like maybe you were the most qualified in that sense to do it because it takes a certain... I have no idea. I mean, it was really... <laughs> well, it sounds like it might be the, yeah. the case. Um, I mean, certainly there was, there were other people being considered, but I think quite a few of them were, were quite hesitant about it. Whereas yeah. I was really like, this is an awesome challenge and I want yeah. to do it. Um, so I yeah I definitely brought the kind of positive uh, let's go do it kind of attitude yeah. to this um, yeah it's hard to say I mean again it was um, it was through connections so it's always about as always it's always about who you know not what you know um, but you know I'm not sure Charlie would have recommended me if I hadn't had that kind of playful yeah. positive kind of attitude yeah. in the first place and and certainly if I hadn't put myself out 
uh, so much in support of the startup community. There's no way that Charlie would have thought so much of me to do that. And it's kind of that weird karma kind of resonant. Mm. Everyone was saying at the time, a few years ago, like, why are you putting all this effort into the startup community? Nobody cares. You're not getting paid for it. There's no reward. And then, you know, a few years later, I'm able to say, well, that, you know, that whole adventure through Phnom Penh mm. and Cambodia and all of that, that was a direct result of putting in all of that free effort into into looking at the, looking after the startup community. So, you know, never say never. There's... <laughs> do what you love doing yeah. and then eventually it'll pay back yeah 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 yeah. I think that's a story that a lot of people have experienced if you do something really because you care and because you love mm. love doing it that's just a contagious thing that people see and yeah, they exactly. want to support you and they want to help you and yeah. they'll look out for you and yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah I mean coming back to Perth has been amazing after 18 months away and suddenly like messenger fills up goes, hey you're in town can we go for a beer or we'll go for a coffee or you know what do I think about this and, and stuff. it's been awesome it's been yeah. really good so yeah. you've been back in Perth for how, uh, how many two days weeks, two weeks, weeks? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, and how much longer weeks. do you have uh, another week and a half okay so yeah three weeks this time and then I'm back in February so yeah um, so what have you been up to <laughs> uh, quite a lot of drinking <laughs> <laughs> a bit worrying uh, yeah basically just meeting up with, with people I mean obviously I've still got to work every day yeah and I left a whole bunch of stuff here that I've got to sort out and I've got to do a bunch of paperwork with shutting down some of the startups that I kind of left going here in the Bay because I thought I was only going to leave for six weeks <laughs> and so I didn't do, bother doing a whole bunch of paperwork um, like my tax, which is just unbelievable, yeah anyway, <laughs> um, so yeah, I've got a you know, bunch of paperwork today yeah. and a bunch of uh, you know stuff to sort out and um, yeah so that six weeks has do. turned into a... Yeah, six weeks that I was turned into, it's turned into 18 months. 18 months and, and then, continuing. Yeah, and continuing. I mean, we've got no plans to come back to Perth to live. Um, but who knows, you know. I might get an amazing job offer next week and it'll be like, yeah, sure, I'll come back. Yeah. yeah. Fun. <laughs> <laughs> and you also founded the Startup News, right? Which... Uh, technically, no. Okay. So I founded uh, perthstartupscene.com.au... Patrick Green started Startup News. We both started at about the same time, and uh, I turned up to a morning startup, and Patrick was up talking about Startup News, and I was like, ah, okay. So I went and talked to him, and it was obvious that we are doing the same thing at the same time, so we merged. He had a much better site, so uh, I, I merged all my content into Startup News and became a co-founder of Startup News. Um, and then he left a year later, and I carried it on my own for a good six months, and then Miles Burke joined... He stayed for about 18 months and then, you know, it all kind of ran out because we, we couldn't work out how to make it sustainable. Mm. Um, and I got quite disillusioned with the whole scene uh, before I left as well. We were getting a lot of innovation consultants from the west end of Perth and it was all just going a bit weird. Um, and so, like, when the Thailand gig came up, I was really like, yeah, okay, let's, you know, spend a few weeks out, outside and then come back yeah. and hopefully it'll be yeah, fresh out. Yeah. So. Yeah. But, yeah, meanwhile, it's... Uh, it's a lot more vibrant now than it was, I think, and yeah. there's a, it's a lot more focused, and there's more money kicking around, and it's Space Cube has gone on leaps and bounds, and yeah, it's like it, it's looking really good here. So yeah, maybe they well, didn't that's high praise. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe they didn't need me after all. It's like I should have left two years ago, and it would have been better still. Yeah. yeah. So what's next? Oh God, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> I'll carry on working on the startup, and hopefully that will make me a millionaire, and then I'll be able to come back and help. With money, but... <laughs> Become a VC. Yeah, precisely. Gen- well, that's the, Gentleman VC. That's what they get. <laughs> yeah, it's a gentleman investor. Yeah. 
Um, I mean, that's what they call the, the escalator, that you start off with this big pool of ideas, and out of that, a few people go on to form startups, and that's kind of the first step, and then the second step is they employ a few people and then move up a step, and they get investment, or they start making money, and they go up and go, and eventually at the top they sell and exit, and like follow around the escalation to the next step that they become the VCs and, and help invest and the employees who are part of it who've now seen how a startup works they then join the ideas pool with that experience and so they can help the next generation of startups keep going around yeah so and I'm starting to see it now I and mean, we're starting to see some really like VGW at Bart there's a whole bunch of them uh, Power Ledger and stuff who like were part of the community and have grown from the community into these um, great startups and you can see them in a few years time when those will have exited and they've the whole pool of employees who understand how startups work and there's a whole pool of um, you know richer people who've exited that business mm. who are able to then invest in the next way so yeah yeah um, hopefully I'm part of that I don't know where I am on the escalator <laughs> but yeah hopefully <laughs> yeah um, so good nice <laughs> for the moment uh, I'm going to spend uh so we're talking about coming here in February and then over the States in April and then off to Europe probably uh, in May, do six months in Europe and then I want to go and see South America. So there's a chance we'll go and do that. And then, yeah. Um, but I think we'll definitely come back to Perth um, at some point. <laughs> I'd like to see the gentleman investor. <laughs> do you need a bigger mustache for that? Yes, sure. Yes. <laughs> you One of the big monopoly mustaches. <laughs> like curly, is it curly? Yeah, yeah huge curly one. <laughs> Dead white, I think, absolutely. Just that big white bushy. <laughs> Look like the fat controller. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks, Marcus. That's right. <laughs> and that wraps up this episode of Fearlessly Playful. In the next episode, we speak to a coach and therapist who uses kinesiology combined with the power of play to connect people with their greatness. If you'd like to find out more about how you can use the power of play to innovate, build better teams, or prepare for the future, you can visit my website, fearlesslyplayful.com, or find me on Twitter. I'm at Ocean Park. The music for Fearlessly Playful is by Brian Fairbanks of Daisy Ale Sound, and I'm Kate Rainscold.